Welcome to the Fathom Academy podcast, a podcast designed for the people of Fathom Church to be a resource to go deeper with God. I'm Kyle Knight, I'm the youth and digital minister here at Fathom. Thank you for listening in wherever you are. Um, we have a very special guest with us here again this week, Ryan Tafalowski. Ryan, welcome back. Hey guys. Yeah, good to be with you. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. We just had a, a baby, or I should say my wife had a baby uh, two, two weeks ago, so a little tired. Uh, and thinking's a little fuzzy. So, uh, if I say anything heretical, that's why. Okay. That's, that's why that's okay. Um, we also have our pastor, Chris Martin here. Hey, yo. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a six year old and I sleep great. <laughs> and he still says heretical things. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. So this will, this will all fold in together. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we brought Ryan here, uh, to talk about church discipline, uh, we kind of just wrapped up a two week series on church discipline here at Fathom. So if you haven't listened to those sermons, go back and listen to those now. Uh, but we wanted to bring Ryan on to, to talk more kind of in depth about church discipline, what that is, uh, biblically, historically, all that kind of good stuff. So, um, so Ryan, please, uh, if you could just kind of give us first, um, biblically church discipline, what does that, what does that look like? in the Bible? What does that look like for us that we can read about in the Bible about church discipline? Oh yeah. So we talked uh, about some of these themes already when we talked about church membership some months back and a lot of the, a lot of what held there will still be important here. The first thing to understand when thinking about church discipline in the new Testament is that, um, Paul and the other founders of these apostolic communities had a vision for communal life that is very, very rigorous in ways that is quite actually foreign to us and our culture. So the first thing to say is that these are communities that in some meaningful, tangible way, feel a sense of accountability to and for one another. So all discipline is done in that context. Um, And so, you know, you see every once in a while, a good example is in the Corinthian correspondence where, um, well, if you know a little bit, as I, I know you do as a church, because Pastor Chris preached through First Corinthians, I think not in the not too distant past. Is that right? Yeah, last year. Right. So <clears throat> if you read that book, you know, every once in a while, people r- will romanticize the early church and just be like, hey, man, like, why can't we do stuff like the early church did? And then I always think, have you read First Corinthians? Because these people are a disaster, right? <laughs> like the whole thesis of the book of First Corinthians is stop it, right? I've heard you're doing this, so stop it. And I've heard you're doing this, so stop it. And stop doing that. Um, and so this is an incredibly dysfunctional community uh, where you've got all kinds of grievous sexual sin going on, say, and you got folks who are having a hard time breaking it off with their pagan past. Uh, you got people mistreating one another, especially around the Lord's Supper, and you got people dragging one another to court. So it's a mess. And you see the dynamics of church discipline quite a lot in that letter because Paul, and in 2 Corinthians 2, because Paul is trying to rein these people in in a way that does not alienate them and ostracize them from the community unless it's an absolute last resort. So one thing you want to notice is in the new Testament church discipline is always designed to restore rather than to break relationship. Um, This is absolutely critical for us to understand church discipline is not about um, sort of making you fall in line uh, and then uh, sort of taking some sort of perverse pleasure when you don't and cutting you off, it is so that we can be one body, one faith, one baptism, right? As Paul says. So um, what you'll see 
is a sort of tenacious commitment to the unity of the body. That is the presupposition of church discipline in the New Testament. And even when Paul says things like, hey, that guy who's unrepentant, you got to turn him over to Satan. Even that is in service of restoration because Paul goes on to qualify so that he might be restored. Um, so I think what I, the main thing I'd want to say about church discipline in the New Testament is that it is for the restoration of relationship, um, which is very, very important for the way that we think about the church. Um, and I don't know if you'd want to add anything there. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, there's, there's a number of instances uh, in the New Testament, both kind of formally or seemingly informally dealing with what do you do when somebody who professes faith in Christ sins? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do with that? Um, in the body. And, and I just, I think that's, I think that's a big deal um, to, to take those, those texts and to work through them contextually. And then also how do we extrapolate kind of principles from that? But it would seem to me that, that the reason behind any sort of formalized or even informalized church discipline is, is like Ryan just said, one for the good of the, the, person in sin, the Christian in sin, mm-hmm. it's for that person's good. Uh, two, it, it, for the good of a relationship, right? So especially in, in Matthew 18, it's when one brother is sinned against another brother. So there's a, there's some sort of fracture in relationship. So, uh, there's that second piece, uh, three, uh, it would seem that Paul, Paul will use the, the illustration of leaven and, um, and that like sin has a corrupting effect on the community. And so there's something about the purity of, of the congregation of the church of the fellowship that's at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fourth, it's, it's ultimately for the glory of Christ, mm-hmm. right? Like there's, there's a, it's for the glory of Christ, but also for the onlooking community to say, I mean, you, you think about it even today, when you hear about pastors or Christians who fall, who, who fall into sin, who, especially into grievous sin, um, it's like a black mark on not only the church, but on Christ mm. in a lot of ways. A lot of people extrapolate, well, this is what Christians are. This is what Jesus is like. This is what, forget it, forget it right? Mm. So there's an evangelistic witness piece to, to discipline as well. So I think there's a lot of facets and angles to come at from the individual to a relationship to the, the, the communal church to the onlooking world. Um, sin is corrupting and therefore must be taken seriously. And we seem to see in the text uh, ways to effectively handle that and or call it out and or even purify um, one person, one community from that. So I don't, that, that's, that's kind of the thoughts that, that initially come to mind with church discipline. And, and in the sermons, like we went into the sermons, we went kind of deep dive into some areas there, but you could, I mean, you could preach multiple weeks on different facets of discipline and how it plays out, how it plays out in an individual member, how it plays out in a leader, how it plays out in, um, in even like an elder, like Paul will, uh, is it, is it first or second Timothy where Paul talks about when a charge is brought against an elder, Mm -hmm. right? So like there's, there's even kind of instructions about that, how that is done not just a common member, but, but an elder or a, a leader within the congregation. There's lots of, mm. lots of rabbit trails you can go off on. Mm. Good. Um, so, so Ryan, historically, um, how has, how has church discipline been practiced? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, here again, 
in the history of Christianity, church discipline has t- has been taken, I think it's fair to say, much more seriously than it is now in our context. And really, I, I suppose we'll get into this later, but church discipline is uniquely hard to practice in our context for a lot of reasons. But we should note that this sort of um, more lax approach to church discipline is a historical novelty for, for most of the church's history. Those protocols, uh, like Paul, like uh, Paul's in the Corinthian correspondence or in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, uh, and like Chris mentioned in Matthew eighteen, those were taken with the utmost seriousness, and they were actually formalized in a lot of contexts. And so, in the early church, we talked about this in the church membership podcast. Church membership was extraordinarily hard to secure in the first place. Uh, which meant that it was highly privileged, right? You had to go through a long catechumenate process before you could be baptized, before you could have access to the sacraments. Uh, And this meant that if you were going to join the Christian community, it was going to require a lot of you. And church discipline was part of that. You had to submit, and uh, Americans bristle at that word, uh, especially uh, in our kind of expressivist, individualistic sort of context. The idea of submission, that's a dirty word. Um, but when you join the Christian community, say in the year 150, you agreed to submit yourself to the church authority uh, represented by the clergy, but also by the church community itself. And that held through all the way uh, into the Middle Ages, where I think actually church discipline took on some pretty perverse and draconian forms. Uh, I went to graduate school in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, which is the home of John Knox, uh, father of Presbyterianism, or one of them. Uh, and if you've read some John Knox, you'll know that he's a pretty intense guy. And there's a cathedral in central Edinburgh where Knox uh, preached called St. Giles Cathedral. And you can go visit it still. And as you go in, they have something near the door called the Cuddy Stool, which is a very tiny little stool, um, just a few inches off the ground. And it dates to the 16th century. And the Cuddy Stool is where someone was in notorious and unrepentant sin they would have to sit in the cutting stool right at the front of the sanctuary. So when people come in, they would say, oh, there's Ryan on the cutting stool again, <laughs> hasn't gotten his act together. And ostensibly, it was so that people could pray for, mm. for the person. But really, that's sort of a kind of shame-based discipline, I think, that actually misses the intent. I think of- we're going to have to bring that back. <laughs> I think the cutting stool's a really good idea, although... Probably gonna need a lot of them. It's like time out. <laughs> it's like go sit in the corner where your dunce yeah. cap. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, but I I I see that as a corruption because I'm not actually sure how restorative that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm not sure church discipline in the New Testament is designed to shame someone into conformity, mm-hmm. but rather to to remind them of their baptismal covenants and of, of the grace and goodness of God ultimately. Mm-hmm which makes space for, for the ones who go astray. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a, a long story short, church discipline was taken very, very seriously for the majority of Christian history. Um, and it still is, uh, for instance, in Roman Catholic contexts where you can still be excommunicated mm-hmm. if you hold views inconsistent with Catholic teaching, which means you're denied the sacrament. Um, Protestants have a harder time understanding that, I think. Well, and it's mm-hmm. fascinating to think about um it's fascinating to think about how a diminished view of sin has led to a diminished view of church discipline in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, even in some of the rhetoric around 
evangelicalism uh, today, which is like, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Um, in some ways, diminishing the seriousness mm-hmm. of sin. Um, and uh, be, be, because when a believer, one who is, by the way, no longer a sinner, yes, saved by grace, but you are no longer primarily identified as a sinner once you are a Christian, you are a saint now who may lapse into sin, who may sin, but your identity is shifted. Um, so I think that's an important point. But the way that almost many evangelicals, many Protestants would be flippant towards, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, God is, you know, I'm good thing I'm saved. Like, yeah, I've really been wrestling with this. I mean, almost diminishing um, a view of holiness, diminishing a view of mortification of the flesh, diminishing a view of of really the the atrocious offense to a holy God that uh, our disobedience mm-hmm. and rebellion is can can very easily change the narrative of church discipline to being harsh and to being unkind and to being unloving mm-hmm. when in fact in the original context it was meant to to be the most loving thing that a church could practice towards a sinning member. Oh, I'm glad you said that, Chris. And I have a couple of thoughts. Uh, number one, I think you're right. Uh, it is a, a, a sort of a disregard for church discipline, rightly understood, I think is an index and a symptom of not only a deficient view of sin, but I would even say a deficient view of salvation because we often uh, default into thinking of salvation as being sort of in, I made it in, right? And yeah. now I'm in. Uh, and that's true on one level, and that's very important to say. But if we look at the New Testament closely, I think we'll see that salvation does not just mean being delivered from the penalty of sin, although it does mean that. Salvation ulti- ultimately means, I think, what Jesus calls life abundant, or uh, what Peter calls partaking in the divine nature. The view of salvation in the New Testament is much more interesting than saying a Jesus prayer being in and then being like, well, yeah, I still sin. It's, it's Mm -hmm. actually a sharing in the life of God. And so church discipline is not when it's at its best, I should say is not about being harsh or authoritarian. It is about reminding a brother or sister that there is life abundant for them. Mm -hmm. uh, If they will repent. Right. And, You just preached on Matthew 18, as I understand, and I think it's really significant that Jesus gives those protocols for dealing with sin in that chapter. That's remarkable in its own right, because Jesus is nothing if not a realist. It's just obvious to him that this little community is going to wound itself. (laughs) People in the community are going to hurt one another, and there have to be ways to remedy that. And then if you look at the broader context of Matthew 18, he's giving you those protocols just after he's told the parable of the lost sheep, where he says that God is such that when one person wanders off, he leaves the 99 to restore that sinner. Because in a very real sense, we are not what we should be as the people of God unless we're all reconciled together. And when we're missing even one, we've got to do everything we can to restore Mm -hmm. that person. So it's a beautiful vision of reconciliation, um, not a sort of draconian set of protocols to punish one another. Mm. Yeah. So in in thinking of in thinking of our our churches and 
American suburban evangelical churches. Um, really, what does like what does church discipline look like today in our churches? What does it look like? What what maybe should it look like? Maybe the pros and cons of church discipline going on today. Um, I'll say a couple things to, to launch us. Number one, I don't see that it's possible to practice church discipline without church membership. Mm-hmm. So we, like you've already alluded to a number of times, we, I know Foothills, I, I know Fathom, we, we have a high, higher ecclesiology. Oh no, I don't know. Some of my friends would say your ecclesiology is not high, but, um, <laughs> It's I would relative. say for evangelicals, for, you know, non-denominational, baptistic, whatever field you want to put us in, we have a higher ecclesiology, a higher view of church membership where we take very seriously um, that, that like, like Ryan, you've already talked about kind of, there is a higher bar. Now we're not doing, we're not doing what they did in the you know first few centuries where there's not this three-year process, two-year process to become a baptized believer. But we try to practice a more faithful biblical church membership that then defines accurately um, the community of believers in a local gathering, a local body, and also sets very clear standards of uh, both practices and of... um, I would say like standards of holiness that we would expect for people um, that when those are broken, there's also a, an accountability that we have agreed to. So at some level you have to agree to discipline in order to practice discipline. Oh, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and I mean, we could go on from there, but I mean, the vast majority of churches that I would, um, you know, say people are enamored with in our contemporary moment just don't practice these sorts of things. I mean, essentially you can't, I don't know how you would practice discipline without having some sort of active membership. No, church discipline is literally only intelligible within a context in which the church and the individual member are mutually accountable to one another and committed to one another in a relationship of love, which is, I know you use covenant language, covenant membership language, which I think is very helpful. Because a covenant is not a contract. It's a mutual submission out of love. And outside of that context, I, th- I think I agree with you. I'm not sure how you would even do it. Yeah. We wouldn't even have the language to do it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and then a, a real difficulty arises. And I'd love, Ryan, maybe you can dig into this a little bit more with me. But the difficult one of the difficulties, even in my brain, is getting getting to the place where you actually can practice church discipline the way that it's laid out in the new Testament, when it's very easy to anonymously leave Mm -hmm. and to anonymously arrive at another church, sometimes less than a block away. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so maybe this is the question is, is church discipline practicable today um, with the kind of consumer driven culture of church in the West. Uh, I think we're just about at time, Kyle. Is that right? <laughs> uh, we got, we got a little bit more okay. time. <laughs> oh, uh, 
the short answer is I don't know, but I'm I'm inclined to think not. Okay. Uh, and the reason I say this is because there are such powerful cultural forces at work that are tough to get past. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about the procedures laid out in Matthew 18. If you've got a problem, if you've been wounded by a brother or sister, you take it to them directly. It's hard to imagine sometimes even getting to step one, let alone past it. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, because difficult conversations are hard. And, and take this from me, I'm a serial conflict avoider. I consider it a serious character flaw. <laughs> it's a disciplinary offense. Yes. It's a disciplinary offense. Uh, and I, I'm finding in my work as a pastor, it's one of the areas I need to grow most. I don't like to do this stuff. Um, partially because it's unpleasant and partially because it can just be very messy to enter into a relationship like that with someone. Um, so it's hard because it's unpleasant, but also another reason it's difficult to imagine is because it presupposes the kind of commitment to one another that is durable enough to withstand that. Mm. And I think that, and I don't mean to be uncharitable and I want to be fair and I don't want to point with too broad a brush, but I do think we're not always being conditioned to think about church in ways that create a relationship durable enough to withstand mm. that where you could have someone come to you and say, listen, I've really been hurt by something that you've done. One's natural impulse would be to just not work through it, but just leave, um, which you can. That's right. Uh, it was not always like that. Uh, and part of the reason that church history has many more examples of robust examples of church discipline is because it was not as easy to anonymously leave in that way. Um, and so by the time you get to the last step in Jesus's protocols there, it's just hard to imagine it getting there. Um, because I, I think it, it just requires an ecclesiology that is characterized by an intense commitment to one another. So to have the Matthew 18 conversation requires that you love the person enough to do something very, very difficult. Whereas the unloving thing to do is to not even raise it at all, actually. Mm. And that's easier. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, let, let me ask a follow-up question. Even if we may, may or may not ever get to, let's say, let's call it step four. Okay. One-to-one -one step is step one. Three to one is step two. Whole church is step three. Excommunication is step four. That's pretty butchered down, but let's just say that there's, you know, four steps. Is it is it useful to practice church discipline even if it is harder than ever to practice church discipline as a local congregation? I think so, because of what we said earlier, that church discipline most fundamentally ought to be an expression of love, even if that means taking some very severe actions for a time. So there's a very, there's a passage in first Corinthians where Paul says, there's a man who's in a, a state of unrepentant sexual sin, very destructive and grievous sin. And to your point earlier, Chris, it's also harming the community in some way. And Paul says, 
turn that man over to Satan, which <laughs> it's hard to imagine something harsher uh, than saying, turn someone over to Satan. But that's not the end of the story for Paul. He says, turn him over to Satan so that he may yet be redeemed. So even the most drastic steps are, are ought to be in service of reconciliation. Um, and so I do think it's worth practicing if we can get the kind of tenacious relationships that can, can withstand it, um, which is easier said than done. But truthfully, and it seems paradoxical, but a, a church community that has no expectations of one another can't possibly be serious about loving one another. Mm. In the same way, roughly analogous, right? The, the Bible uses all kinds of marriage metaphors about the church. If you have trouble in your marriage, which is to say you are a married person, right? And every marriage has difficulty. Ideally, you've got the kind of relationship that can withstand even very, very difficult, awful conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's precisely because of the love for that you have for one another that you have those discussions. Mm -hmm. And a sign of a marriage that is in very dire straits is that difficult conversations actually never take place yeah. because that's a signal that one has given up. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think you're right that. So I said in my sermon, the first sermon on church discipline that I don't, I didn't get, use a percentage, but I would say 90%, 95% of all church discipline should terminate upon step one. Mm. I mean, this, the most normative practice of church discipline, if we get anything out of Matthew 18, is love your brother enough to go to them, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I know everyone wants to focus on bring it to the church, you know, cast them out, let them treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector, you know, hand them over to Satan, excommunicate them. Mm -hmm. And those, but if you're doing, if you're doing regular committed life with other believers, in a, in a covenant community, you're going to bristle against each other. You're going to hit, I mean, it's iron sharpening iron. It's a violent thing. It's, it, you're going to have that. And if you're willing to say, Hey, and when you said that, that actually hurt the way that you treated me on that, that was, or Hey, the way that you talked about your wife at, at discipleship group. And that felt like, I know you were joking, but it felt a little like, are you, are you guys okay? Mm -hmm like entering into those uncomfortable situations, you know, where we're afraid to stir up something to say, Hey, I'm, I, I love you enough to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. Like if you do that, my, my gut tells me that the community that practices that is the community that would will, be willing to practice the, the, the heavier steps three and four as it were, mm. but are the communities that would actually be so much more open to confession, repentance, be so much more open to loving correction and receiving and giving that. Mm. Um, I mean, so I've only been a part of, well, I've been a part of a couple of church discipline conversations in my life, um, in, in church ministry and stuff. But, but I remember one, uh, probably a decade 
or so ago where uh, it was me and a woman in our church uh, in, in the ministry that I was overseeing. We had uh, a, a real kind of, uh, I mean, a fight, like a real verbal fist fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I punched her. <laughs> yeah. So I was disciplined. No, that's not, it was, but it was this verbal interchange and there was a lot of heat and it was, and, and, and we were not like it, it could have very easily turned into a, a thing, you know, uh, I'm leaving the church or she's leaving the church or, you know, we're just going to not make eye contact and play the cold shoulder game for the next, however long until, you know, something else happens that allows for us to get out. But we talked and we were like, hey, we need to handle this. And we both felt like we couldn't do it together, just one-on-one. And so we brought in a third party Mm -hmm. and we were just like, let's just skip to step two. Mm -hmm. Let's just bring in a third party to help mediate this conversation. And it was ugly. Like the mediation, I mean, by that, I mean, like I was able to say, this is what hurt when you said that. And she was able to say, well, this is what I interpreted and this is why I said that. And it was like, oh no, like we're missing each other. We, we we're, we're angry at each other. And for that third party to be able to say, okay, let's work through this. And ultimately, ultimately we were able to work through that. Mm. Both of us were able to reconcile and yeah, I can say to this day, we are close friends. Mm. Now that doesn't happen if it's just the blow up and then somebody, you know, takes their ball and goes home. Mm-hmm. I think that's a more realistic discipline scenario than even first Corinthians five. I mean, first Corinthians five feels like you fast forward to the end of the the process. But I think that most of our encounters are going to be like, Hey, man, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. And that's the end of that discipline. Yeah. Yeah, uh, The theologian Rowan Williams calls this the constant work of mending. He says that any Christian community that is serious is going to require the constant work of mending. And that's really a helpful image actually, because it suggests a small tear in the fabric that can be sewn up quickly if it is addressed. Mm -hmm. But if you leave it, the fabric begins to tear apart and ultimately the garment becomes unsalvageable. So, um, and as you're speaking to, I was thinking of second Corinthians five, the ministry of reconciliation. He says, we're compelled by the love of Christ to constantly being reconciled, right? To bringing reconciliation wherever we go, which presupposes that there's going to be alienation or difficulty. But there's a real, I like how you put it, Chris, in, in telling that story, there's a real proactive element that is required here. Mm. Because if you do that constant work of mending, that, re- that ministry of reconciliation before things blow up, then you don't need steps two through four. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully you don't. So let me ask one final one, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Yep. Yeah. What does a church do with a committed member who falls into sin? Um, is unrepentant in step one or maybe step two or maybe even step three just are obstinate and their response the members response is deuces i'm out of here um i mean this real pragmatically like is it still the job of the members to essentially corporately say this person has like is do you still practice church discipline to the end or do you is is the escape hatch? Oh, I see. Do we let that happen? Does that make sense? Like that's mm-hmm. where my mind has been has been kind of rolling around. Is do we if if um if a member tries to run to another church or wherever um without repenting, if they are a covenant member, 
Do we just strike them from the roster or do we as a community say, hey, this person has covenanted with us. We've mm -hmm. tried this. We've done this. They've run. And so we are officially going to have to remove. I mean, officially we are removing our hand of we would. It's different than a member who just leaves under good circumstances, a member who walks away because of unrepentant sin. I don't know. What do you do with that, Ryan? That's interesting. I'm not sure. I, one place to think about, and I, I forgive me, I, I can't think of which letter it is, one of the pastoral epistles, or Paul, and I can't remember which co-workers either, but Paul talks about having been abandoned by two of his co-workers. He says they, they have loved the world yeah. more than they have loved uh, preaching the gospel. And he says, God will sort it out, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he just says, God will see to it, right? And I think that's quite a helpful posture um, because Paul, not just there, but elsewhere in his corpus, doesn't seem particularly interested in people who are outside the household of the faith. And I, I, I mean, not interested <laughs> in disciplining them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, he expects people outside the household of faith to act like people outside the household of faith, right? Um, and you know, Peter also says in first Peter, judgment begins in the household of God, right? We get our own house in order. If someone leaves my initial impulse without having thought about it very much is, is to follow Paul there and just sort of say, God will sort it out. Now, if they attempt to return at some later date, you can't just hit a reset button, right? Mm -hmm. That has to be dealt with. Um, but I'm not sure that I would do much. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right answer. It's just my first yeah. reaction. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Church discipline. It's, I mean, it's not cut and dry. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, any last words? We, we went pretty long on this one, but th that was good. Good well, discussion. Well, if we learned on, anything today, it's that Ryan is a dictator. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing about me. Love power, love punishing people. <laughs> you remember only one thing. If you remember only yep. one thing. If you remember only one thing. Ryan is the next Mussolini. <laughs> And we're recording all of this. So oh, mercy. Well, thank you, Ryan, for being here to talk about church discipline. Thank you, Chris, for talking about that. Again, if you haven't listened to the uh, the two sermon sermons on church discipline, take a listen to those on our app or on YouTube, wherever you want to listen to them on on Spotify, all that kind of good stuff. But uh, thank you, Ryan. Um, thank you, church, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.